Welcome to Slow Agency. This podcast offers a space for writing center and writing studies people to slow down, think, dialogue, and reflect on issues affecting their professional lives. I'm Esther Namubiru. I'm Wajali. And I'm Anna Habib. We are honored to steward this podcast. To learn more about Slow Agency, visit Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders, a blog of WLN, a journal of writing center scholarship. So today we're talking about writing centers at the center of change. That's the title of the book by Brian McTagg and Joe Essett, who are joining us here today. I'm Brian McTagg. I'm the director of the Writing Center at Virginia Commonwealth University, or VCU. And I've been in that role for eight years now. And um, I'm also the, the vice president of the Southeastern Writing Center Association and president-elect. So starting in February with our new cycle, I will be the president of SWCA. And I love writing center work more than anything and more than I ever thought I would when I was placed in the writing center as a graduate teaching assistant about 12 years ago. And I didn't even know what a writing center was. So I quickly acclimated to it and grew to love it and have been for, have been fortunate enough to to uh, my life's work in it now. So. That's great. Congratulations on your your new presidential position. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> like Brian, I fell into writing center work. I've been at the University of Richmond, where I'm the director of the writing center, now for 30 years. So I guess I'm the old man. Um, it's been an interesting journey. I, I was an Americanist at Indiana University when I began to tutor students one-on-one. I had done some one-on-one work with English language learners before I went to graduate school. So I began to get interested in writing center work. And in fact, Richmond's my hometown. There was an opening here and I applied for it and I came back home. And I've been teaching in the English department, uh, literature classes, as well as our first year seminar. But like Brian, my heart has come to rest in writing center work. I really enjoy it. Thank you so much for those introductions. And I'm actually really excited <clears throat> to talk with you about this book because you're talking about change. Um, in the introduction of the book, you have this brilliant uh, scene setting uh, where you talk about a 2017 Horsey's annual meeting session that I think it was, um, um, Brian, you were the one chairing it, I believe. Oh, Joe, Joe is the one yeah, chairing I, it. I was and, the one by the ice machine. You know, for some of our readers who haven't read the book, I think they should hear that because it, it really was the... According to what you wrote, it's, it's what really necessitated this book, spawned this book. So set the scene for us back in 2017 at that meeting. Okay. Um, I've been talking to a couple of people about doing a session concerning the types of change we'd had in the last 10 years. I was just thinking about what's happened in writing centers with all of the institutional change I've been writing about otherwise. Our universities I knew were changing to become more of what I call managed universities. And I didn't invent that term, but with a corporate model. And what would it mean for writing centers? So I put a query out. Ben Rafeth, well-known, Shireen Grogan, who was uh, at that time was uh, president of the president of the IWCA. Mm-hmm. And I had... Um, just had a lot of interest from people wanting to be on this panel and attend it. And so we got a room in Portland at the conference center and none of us could find it at first. Where is 252A or whatever it was? Well, none of them were had an A at the end. And I began looking around and I I asked someone, they said, it's down that hall. And as I went down the hall, it became less and less posh. There was no 
fancy carpeting, no artwork by local artists, no <laughs> view of Portland. It was fluorescent lights and tile, and there's an ice machine. And I said, I'm going the wrong way. And then I saw a room. We were down a service corridor. The room itself was <laughs> fine. And it was also packed with writing center people. And after the session, we, we'd sent a legal pad around and said, if you have any interest in writing something about change at your institution, and we just got a ton of email addresses. And many of those people, and then several others we invited, became authors in this anthology. But the whole idea that we were stuck in a service corridor spoke volumes about the perceived role of writing centers on campuses and how little things have changed since Muriel Harris, Stephen North, those folks were beginning to write about writing centers. You know, I, when I was reading that scene, I thought, oh, yeah, marginalization. Here we go. But you said, no, it's about service. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I remember us, the last time I was in D.C. during the four, not the four C's, heaven forbid, I'm talking about MLA. I happened to be there on holiday with my wife during MLA, and I've only been to one MLA. Well, there was a great literary scholar in my favorite coffee shop with a group of devotees around him, and he was holding forth probably the way Tolkien and Lewis held forth at the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford. And I said, what a phony baloney. He's just full of himself. Um, I can be full of myself, too, in a different way, but I'm not about celebrity. Uh, I, of course, I enjoy seeing my name in print, but where I measure success is, have we helped writers become better writers? Back to what I call North's Law. Have we served, and this is where Steve and I defer, have we helped to enhance the curriculum? And yeah, what I called in an article, extending that alternative. Have we helped improve conditions on the ground where writing is done at our universities? That's a form of service. We call it academic support. I don't know why service is a dirty word, but there I stand. That's what I I like doing. So I didn't mind being down that corridor. And I thought that was a good place actually to be, given what we do on our universities. You need an ice machine. You need clean restrooms. You need good food service. What's wrong with that? Well, it's the irony about this is that in the book, you also say, because of these changes that are coming institutionally, writing centers are getting merged with other service programs, student support programs. Yeah. And I could be wrong. I could be reading this wrong, but I, I sensed that it was not necessarily a welcome change. Based on what you just said, it's about service. So Depends on who's setting the stage for the service now. If our pedagogical mission is undermined, then it's a bad deal. But otherwise, no, we, we can work with these other services. We can enter the library. We can work alongside a speech center or an academic skills center or a services for English language learners or those with learning disabilities. But if we lose sight of the mission of helping writers talk about their writing, become better writers, if we're forced to become proofreading shops because of institutional assessment that says you've got to see more writers every year, you've got to get this, that, and this rubric, that's what I worry about, about uh, things imposed from outside and not developed from within by people who know writing pedagogy. So that was that's the voice of concern there. 
And maybe Brian, you can help me understand that voice of concern, that pedagogical relevance. How does that relate to the other notion that you mentioned that as we get merged, we, we writing center people get merged with other programs, one resource remains lacking, <laughs> that is the student success resource. Well, it's interesting because in part, uh, and we mentioned this in the introduction to our book, Joe is much more pessimistic and I'm much more optimistic. I mean, just <laughs> in life. And, but it worked so beautifully when we were working on this book, you know, so we could balance each other out. And I've been very fortunate to have very positive experiences at my university with um, merging of units as, you know, an overall academic success unit or student success unit. Um, and mostly everybody being on the same page, you know, and understanding uh, the pedagogical importance of the work that we do. But that's, I know that that's, that I am very fortunate and that that's not always the case. So uh, we wanted to sort of present, you know, multiple voices, multiple perspectives in our collection um, to kind of address the different concerns, but also successes, you know. I, I, I was pleasantly surprised by what we found in the book. I, I, I don't want uh, anyone to think that my innate pessimism, which is real, uh, corresponds to anything on my campus. Things have gone very well. And we've had a good collaboration with the other support services on our campus. We're a small school. We know each other. But I was hearing stories, and I wanted to make them more than stories. I wanted to get some empirical data, if we could, about what was going on on the ground at other writing centers. But only one of our chapters was uniformly negative, and that person left field. I mean, sorry, left the uh, left that job and went to another university. One person in our book has left the field completely because of the inability to wow. find a position. But that's not bad considering some of the data uh, that's been out there about new writing center directors and how long they stay. So can you just describe in your own way, rather than me reading the description on the book cover, can you tell us what is this book about in a nutshell? It's really about the fact that almost by nature, writing centers are always in a state of flux, you know, constantly changing, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, not as often for the worse. Um, but we wanted to kind of build on that and see if we could connect that to these individual changes we've seen, you know, at different universities and from colleagues and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we use the word change in the writing center every day, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, um, we always have new students coming in. We have new staff, you know, staff doesn't stay that long because all, at least at our university, all of our staff is, uh, our students. Uh, so mm -hmm. they're student workers. So they graduate, you know, they might be with us for a couple of years, uh, very rarely. And, uh, I feel very lucky when this does happen, we might have someone for, five years if they start as an undergrad and then continue as a graduate student. But, you know, staff's changing, students are changing, assignments are changing, professors are changing, mm -hmm. you know, structure, reporting structure is changing. You know, mm -hmm. I think since I've been the director of the writing center, uh, since 2013, we have been in five different 
divisions or units or offices or so uh, five yeah so it's it it's always changing at the writing centers and you know it's an important thing to i think discuss and you know see see what we can do with that yeah to just acknowledge it and say that out loud and recognize that we're all in that changing state um kind of give space for that that's what i think this book is doing is like allowing us to make room to acknowledge that this is our natural state yeah joe did you want to add to that i'm actually looking into the introduction and we sent an, uh mm-hmm. we had 52 responses and i'm not ready to sum all that up right now but we we saw how many had experienced changes just of the sort Brian talked about. I will read one thing. Um, we wanted to know how long the lead administrator had been in the position. The highest response rate was one year. But the majority of replies did indicate that lead administrators had been in their positions for five years or fewer. So read that however you will, but but we have a lot of new people in writing centers. And my hunch about this, I don't have any data to back this up. Writing centers have become recognized as important, and I'm going to use this word knowingly, commodities on campus. I think we exist in a corporatized university environment in the United States. There was a joke going around Indiana when I was at grad school a long time ago. We were calling students revenue units. Well, that's become more true than ever. And these revenue units expect amenities. They expect services. And universities provide them. But the dark side of that is that we may lose track of this essential mission we have. And that when you're moving around so many times, Brian, you have to re-explain yourself to a bunch of new people. That's so true at large universities. I always worry about the the number of non-teaching administrators who are being hired as compared to faculty. And why is that happening? So we just saw a lot of churn in where writing centers were housed, who was leading them, who their partners were in this endeavor. And that, that sums up a lot of what we found. But most of the change in the end, I mean, it was there was no animosity towards writing centers, no animosity towards writing center administrators. There was just a lot of uncertainty about what we do and where we do it. Mm-hmm. Is that is that accurate, Brian, to your recollection? Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think because, I mean, what it really comes down to, which sometimes seems to get forgotten, uh, not necessarily in writing centers, I think probably not in writing centers, but sometimes in, in universities at large, it almost feels like we forget that the reason we're doing everything, it's our students, you know, all students need to know how to write and to write well not just for to do well on a paper, but, you know, a well-written email to a supervisor when they're in the professional world. Um, you know, I, I always think to um, this one consultant who I had, who, writing consultant, who was a student, <laughs> he started his email with, yo. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, I get close to my consultants, but this was a newer one. And even the ones that I'm close to, you know, I wouldn't quite expect that kind of salutation from them. You know, I don't expect anything really formal, but 
that it makes you think, you know, like that's something we can help students with as well. You know, if we can show them the importance of uh, writing for your audience in particular, that's something I'm very interested in Mm -hmm. and uh, that we talk a lot about in our writing center. Um, I think that can be, that can be really helpful because most of the time they're, they're not, they're just like, I have to get this, this paper done or, you know, I have to churn out this email real quick and they're not stopping to think about the implications about what they're writing and who they're addressing and stuff like that. For our listeners who may not have read the book and are going to read it after this conversation, on the cover, it um, articulates the new offering as logistical, pedagogical, and existential. Um, And so I'm curious if you can kind of run with that a little bit and explain from your perspective what this book is doing and how it's offering um, a logistical, pedagogical, and existential solutions to the um, the issues at the writing, the, this issue that you're exploring. Our situations are so different, Brian. For the logistics, um, we have we now have similar arrangements. Both of us now report to a provost rather than being housed in an apartment. Brian's shaking his head. What happened? What happened on your campus? Ours is, has since changed. <laughs> Sticking with the theme of the book. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, we are now under, um, the vice president for, um, strategic enrollment management and student success. Oh, interesting. And Joe, your, your writing center is under. We report and I'm evaluated by the provost's office. My teaching is evaluated by English because that's where I teach. Mm-hmm. But this, this change was, was made very clear. And, it, and in some ways it's become logistically it's become simpler. So we were able just a few weeks ago to hire one of our consultants who had graduated from our continuing education program to be our administrative assistant for both the writing center and the speech center while she still continues to provide some tutorial services for our adult learners. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of a a good change. Mm -hmm. And all the stakeholders talked about it, and it was very friendly, part of a larger administrative change at the University of Richmond. That doesn't happen everywhere. But that's logistically, we've come a long way from the damp basement we had when I arrived. It was so damp, I had to go outside with my boat shoes and a pole <laughs> and open a storm drain during heavy rain because the basement wow. would flood. That's, okay. That was the, old, that was the writing kidding. center of the 1980s at a lot of places. Right. You're listening to the podcast of the blog, Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders. To learn more about our guests, visit wlnjournal.org forward slash blog. And now back to the conversation. It sounds like you had so much interest and you did also solicit a few um, uh, authors to contribute to the collection. As you were kind of going through the many um, submissions that you had and in that decision-making process and then the categorizing of your you know, chapters, can you kind of tell us a little bit about how you organize the book into these different headings and why you organize the book that way. I'm looking at the table of contents mm-hmm. and I remember, and Brian, you can update my failing memory on this, that these chapters fell naturally into three areas of what we call new or reimagined spaces. I was thinking about this a lot because there was an abortive move to move all of our tutoring services to our library. The Writing Center was already there. 
my office was, and I got booted out of the library during a renovation and went back to English where I'm going to remain until retirement. But the tutoring service stayed there. So I said, okay, this is there's a lot of churn when you have to physically move a writing center. Where should it be? So, and we had three chapters about that, including one about online writing centers. Then there was the notion of mission, which is very much about pedagogy. So that, there's logistics, pedagogy. What is, what is your mission? How does the mission change when you encounter a changed mission for the university or new standards? Or you partner with another institution, as Jenny Coster did when she began to work with an institution in Argentina. And then finally, I guess this is the most pessimistic part. The third part came in down to contested missions and contested spaces, which really does hit all three of the areas we're talking about, um, starting with Shireen Grogan's just heartrending tale about what happened to her when a hostile administrator came in and decided that a friend from industry was going to run the writing program and not her. The other ones aren't quite as bad, but it, it is what happens when either you change, you have to make a change in response to external forces or the change is forced upon you. So yeah, I think that's really where the existential comes in. Yeah, yeah. Is it, is, I mean, I think it runs throughout, but uh, especially in that that last section. We wanted to end with it on a positive note in the book. So we had Maureen McBride's last chapter. I love that metaphor of being a part of and apart from. Now, a part and a part are words my students often confuse in writing. But that's very important. You're a part of something, but you're also a part from maybe the the relentless, I'll say this, people on my campus are going to hear this, the relentless and annoying way we are always trying to brand ourselves as if we're Verizon or Amazon. Mm -hmm. No, we're an institution of higher learning. As I tell my students, and I'll say this to the world too, we are one of the last defenses against a new dark age. That sounds hyperbolic, but I don't think it is. The university is apart from the commercial sector. Of course, we have to have some income, or we would go out of business. So we're very much a part of that larger mission to be successful financially. Mm -hmm. What are our values in the end? So I liked ending with Maureen's chapter for that reason. Looking through these chapters and um, thinking about them in these three different categories, also keeping in mind that our our audience for the blog is international. Um, so we have many um colleagues internationally who are in the very nascent phases of starting a writing center or, you know, have a very interesting, different, non-Western, non-U.S. based writing center model. For both North American and international audiences, like what can we take away from the voices that are included here, other than the important acknowledgement that this is happening and that we are all in this together. I, I will say that I think the work that we do at writing centers isn't just, you know, correcting someone's grammar or editing a paper just so they'll get a good grade. You know, it honestly is a bit more existential. You know, we're helping students uh, go through the process of writing, you know, which is so, so important. And that's something that we really focus on a lot. Um, in our center, and most centers do, you know, it's kind of the crux of a lot of writing center work is this more holistic approach to writing. I am going to say something that may be a little cautionary. Promote your center relentlessly. 
one of the things I learned from these authors was that uh, don't be afraid to try an initiative that may not work and then try something else. Because I'm thinking of what happened to Gerd Brauer at Freiburg in Germany. He had this wonderful collaboration with local schools, and it's a very different environment from an American university. But because EU regulations and there was an initiative much higher up the chain that affected all the universities, suddenly all this work he had done with local schools was swept aside and he had to reinvent himself. So I think being nimble, promoting your work, making sure others notice your success without sounding arrogant, just to remind people constantly, here's what we are, here's what we do, will serve you very well. Something that I mentioned before when we taught the students about their writing is to know, know your audience. I think that's important for writing centers to keep in mind, too. You know, because um, one of our authors, Kara Lee, is actually a former consultant for me and Joe, or a student of Joe's and, and a student of mine. And she writes about uh, race and representation in the writing center. And, you know, you know, that suggests things, you know, like if your student body is 35% um, underrepresented minorities, you should see that in your writing center staff, you know, because I think it's, it's such a, a powerful moment when a student of color or an LGBTQ plus student comes in uh, to the writing center and can actually work with someone who's like them, you know, that is so powerful for them. And, you know, they, we always talk about writing centers a lot as safe spaces. And I think that kind of helped facilitates that too. But, um, you know, if you if you would not want to be a writing center at a historically black, black university and have all white writing center consultants, you know that seem would seem, seem kind of odd. You know, so knowing your audience, know and the audience in this case is the students. You know, and know how to best serve them. So, how do you respond to a mission that doesn't align with the values of the center or the pedagogy of the center? And then how do you respond to a university who's never had a center? These are very hard questions. We've always had a mission that aligned with our center. But sometimes we, I wouldn't say we've been ignored, but we maybe we're not promoting ourselves well enough. I always look for allies, natural allies among the faculty. And in countries where there's no system of tenure for faculty that may require finding faculty, finding a superstar faculty member who has an interest in writing, a natural ally, who can speak to power, perhaps in a way the director can't. I don't know that that's much different at a place that never had a writing center. I would try to find my allies, and I'd also try to find out first, what does the institution need? Because I tell my own consultants, if you're assigned to a class, and we do have a number of consultants, about 40 of them assigned directly to classes, if the professor says, I simply want you to proofread these papers in terms of and correct every mistake that the writer makes, I say, do it. Let me talk to the professor too. Maybe I can begin to educate that faculty member in a non-condescending way, but let's meet them where they are and try to bring them along. But let's not try to talk down to anyone. And if you're a new enthusiastic director, you know what's right. That can probably get you in a lot of hot water quickly. I think also keeping in mind that the writing center community on on the international level, certainly on the regional and national level in the States, but I, I think 
with IWCA on the international level as well. It's a very welcoming and supportive community. So I would advise to take advantage of that and build relationships, you know, be involved in the doing board work for SWCA for me has been really life-changing professionally, you know, I, um, and there's an added bonus that I get to bring national prominence to my university, you know, which is something that's always important. Um, so I think not being afraid to lean on people that um, you might not know that well, but you can build relationships and, you know, become, uh, you know, good working colleagues and possibly even friends, you know. And I guess remain nimble too, because as you lean on those folks, <laughs> you might find that you become a part of their departments at some point down the road. Right, right. Something Brian said struck a nerve with me because the cultures at VCU and Richmond are very different. And you need to know the culture on the ground when you arrive there as a new director. If I don't publish, if I did not have a PhD, I would not be as respected. As I always tell my consultants, they hired a PhD prima donna to talk to the other prima donnas. And I don't have the same publishing expectations they do, but I try to get an article out there once in a while. And I try to get grants and so on. Service to a state organization, I'd love to do it, but I'm not going to get much recognition on my campus for that. Local service, though, being on the faculty senate last year, uh, being on certain committees, I'm on, on a job search committee for our English language learning director. Things like that get me a lot more credibility. So know the culture and know and spend your time carefully. That's that's advice I'd give to any director. That reminds me of um, you mentioned Maureen's chapter, the, the concluding chapter in the book. I think isn't it? Yeah, negotiating being a part of and apart from. She has this um, little section. I'm just going to read. I think it kind of echoes what you were just both speaking to, and what I think one of the main concerns so many of us have and. So many of the interviews we recently had with um, colleagues overseas about the precarity of writing centers and sort of how to overcome that. So Maureen says, for a writing center administrator to take advantage of their position as an integral member of their institution, they need to understand how their program contributes to their institutional goals. They need to understand their individual identity as a member of their campus and they need to understand how their center embodies and perpetuates narratives. Writing center administrators construct identities, and this means that their identities can and do change in response to different situations. For example, at our center, we have a narrative that we are the group that provides writing support. This is part of the campus grand narrative of our center. For our work, however, this can be a limiting narrative because we also provide support for multimodal projects and speeches and presentations. We're also a site of employment, not just of services. We do outreach activities in our local communities. We initiate programs. And more recently, we started developing and delivering curriculum. As our agency on our campus has shifted, we've realized opportunities to serve as a campus leader. And this has allowed us to reframe our identities for specific purposes. And just skipping ahead, last sentence. Um, writing center administrators can push on the normative, which may involve tipping toward a paradigm shift. While this is risky, when WCAs have achieved capital within the culture of their campuses, there is some buffer to this risk. I found, I just found that really apropos of what we've just been talking about and this idea of, of the narratives that, that are imposed on us, but that we have the agency to, to shift, even if perhaps 
we don't necessarily have the fiscal <laughs> flexibility or we have a lot of c- constraints around what we do, we do have power to shape the narrative of our work. And that to me felt really powerful. And that's where there is the potential for, as she says, paradigm shifts. I, I really like what Maureen said there. And that, that I think that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. We're a well-resourced institution. Money is, is always an object, but that's not the challenge for us. In fact, one, one balance we struck is, as facts shifted on the ground, I was in a meeting where, with a bunch of support services where they were asking us how much space we needed. And everybody wanted all this space. And I turned to the provost. I said, I need one office. We're going to fill that library like a gas. We're going to be everywhere doing writing. All I need is a table somewhere with a little sign, two students with laptops. Well, the provost loves this sort of thing because that's not very expensive. The students are bringing their own laptops. We've got good wireless. We've got coffee nearby. So to me, if you think too hard inflexibly about, I need this many offices so I can claim my territory on campus, you're stuck in the middle of the 20th century. And I'm, I'm a very much a 20th century person, but I think about writing centers in a 21st century manner. You can do a lot on the cheap. You can do a lot with volunteer tutors. We don't have to do that. But there's a lot you can do with a very little amount of money to affect change and get noticed, as long as you're professional about what you do. And we've seen that over the last year and a half, right? Because we ha- we had to change because of the pandemic. And we showed that while not optimal, we can have a writing center with consultations that aren't don't even happen in offices, right? They happen in over Zoom. And we've spent time trying to perfect those, you know, so they are as close to in person as possible. You know. Yeah. Did your, did your numbers go up at PCU? Ours did. Uh they didn't go up last year. Uh they're way up this year, and that includes still a, the majority of consultations being online. Most of ours are in person now, but a number of students want to come in via Zoom, so we offer that hybrid option at all times. And I will say, because of when the book was written, we had no idea it was coming. The pandemic hit us flat-footed when this book was just in right. press. Right, yeah. And a year later, it would have been a different book. So I guess the message there is, there's going to be something you don't expect. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we may not expect is artificial intelligence. Grammarly is getting awfully good. What will come next that may do a lot of writing for students or with students? Hi there, this is Esther, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Anna and Weja, thank you for being a faithful listener of the podcast Slow Agency. As you might have noticed, we take our time creating each season of the podcast. We want to create a space where you can hear slow, thoughtful dialogue among writing researchers and writing center professionals. We also want to make sure that you get the resources to help you navigate the trends and challenges facing our student writers and our centers. So, I'm excited to tell you about Season 3. You'll hear us chat with Noreen Lee about her book, Internationalizing the Writing Center, a guide for developing a multilingual writing center. We're also speaking with Joe Essid and Brian McTagg about Change in the Writing Center and their edited collection, Writing Centers at the Center of Change. And you'll also hear a conversation we had with Susan Lawrence and Terry Zawaki about their book, Rewriting the Center, Approaches to Supporting Graduate Students in the Writing Center. We hope you enjoy Season 3.
So I was going to ask uh, the question about uh, the two keywords, visibility and vitality. But also, I feel like our discussion so far has really touched upon uh, on these two. Um, but I guess I'm wondering, do you two have anything else to add in terms of keeping writing center or writing center work visible and um and I guess sustainable on campus. I want to ask Ryan to talk about his physical location. We very much went to the library because we felt that that would be visible. Every writing center is different, but that for us was the natural place. It's where students are doing work. What about at VCU? Do you if if you could be anywhere on campus, would it be where you are right now or would you go somewhere else? It probably would not be where we are now. We have a fantastically lovely space, <laughs> you know that's very open and very conducive to collaboration and um, the work that we do. But it's on the fourth floor of a academic building. Well, the first two floors are classrooms. And then the second two floors besides us are academic offices, administrative offices, that sort of thing. So it's an odd place for us to be. And we came from a building where we were in a room surrounded by windows. It was a circular room that actually used to be a cafeteria at VCU many, many years ago. And people could see us from, you know, just by walking by and a main thoroughfare of campus. And now they kind of have to seek us out. And um, as such, we've probably done more and more outreach and canvassing for <laughs> the writing center, you know, so folks can find us. But I think, uh, you know, there's talk of, you know, perhaps a coming um, center for all the student success units to be in the same place. And I think that could, uh, that's very exciting to me, you know, for us to be sort of centrally located with folks there doing similar work um, to what we're doing. Student success center. I really like the word success. I mean, there's so many different ways to brand what we do. I kept telling colleagues at other institutions and on my own campus, get the word skills out of your name. Get rid of the word tutor. Now that may sound snooty given my desire to be a service unit, but I think we have to appeal to a professional audience, namely my colleagues. We uh, had a complaint about the term writing fellow as being too gendered. And I said, what about consultant? And no one, no one objected to that because consultant conveys the notion of sitting with someone, coming in as a near peer, maybe with some specialized knowledge and assisting them with their work, which is really what we do. So I like that notion, Brian, that, that we all may collaborate on a student success center. It's a positive, it's a positive word. That, those, those things matter. Those little things really matter. I feel like for current writing center people, this is really, this really puts um, pressure in terms of how much emotion, how much labor, um, including emotion labor, they have to invest. I guess, what, what do you think of that? Find the low hanging fruit, to use an overhand, overused metaphor. We just had a parents weekend, we call it family weekend. And three consultants and I sat outside the library. The weather was lovely with a banner and a bunch of materials. And parents and, and students stopped by and asked about being consultants. That, that don't, didn't cost us much. Uh, we've, we do occasional events in the library. It takes time. 
But if you leave those events just to the directors, they're going to burn out. It's got to be owned by the student employees, too. They have to come up with their own ideas and host their own events under the sponsorship of the Writing Center. And there's usually there's usually university funding available for that. What, what, are, you, what are you doing, Brian, to avoid burnout and get this sort of buy-in with your, your staff? Yeah. Um, something that is very near and dear to my heart since I've been in the Writing Center is the professional development of my student staff, giving them opportunities to build skills that they'll be able to use in the professional world, uh, but also giving them a chance to grow in um, a work environment that, you know, it's mostly writing consulting, right? Um, but we've, you know, we've created shift, a shift leader position. So uh, more, uh, we had, then we have senior consultants, senior consultants lead um, discussion groups and uh, serve as project managers of other consultants, whereas a shift leader helps to supervise the center on a, on a daily basis. And um, we have them almost exclusively now, except for a few that I d I've always done and have special relationships with certain departments or whatever. But um, they do almost all of our workshops and events uh, because and that way we can also offer a whole lot more. <laughs> you know, um, I think we're offering something like 50 events you know, mostly writing workshops this semester. I could not do that <laughs> myself, you know, as much as I might want to, because I love doing them. Um, but this, the consultants love doing them as well. And it, you know, gives them uh, more of a classroom teaching experience type of um, uh, thing, because, you know, usually our group, group workshops have anywhere from 10 to sometimes 80 participants, you know, so it's a little different than just the one-on-one -on -one consulting that they normally do, and a lot of our folks do want to, do have uh, goal the goal of teaching at some point in their careers. So that's very helpful, and again, it just helps us grow in our offerings. You know, we have our uh, GTAs, our graduate teaching assistants, uh, develop workshops. You know, so they they come up with ideas that myself and the coordinator probably might never have thought of. You know, we're, like we have one coming up on. Um, how to best uh, w work through writing about trauma uh, from one of our GTAs who is uh, in the Master of Social Work program. And I think that's something that a lot of students could uh, find very helpful, but I, I don't know if I would have thought to do something like that, you know, or even have had the, the you know, the expertise to, to write about something like that. So. It seems like um, delegating tasks to student employees and ask them to be creative about what can offer. Um, Absolutely. Then, then the second question, um, well, it's more about for future, uh, for, for the future. So for those who are interested in becoming a writing center director, someone like me, I'm from um, education. I got interested in writing center work because I was a writing consultant for four years. And that gave me some, I guess, foundation in terms of thinking about my future career. Um, but as I become more invested in the scholarship, I realize 
you know, writing center is really an interdisciplinary field. And I feel like, well, I'm going to say something that might challenge a lot of people. I could see how training in English or rhetoric and comm might not be enough to prepare the future writing center directors. I feel like people can really benefit from a field of education or educational leadership to really understand how to run the center um, and also understand how uh, it's positioned within the institution. Um, but on the other hand, I also think that one has to understand writing and writing tutoring in order to run a writing center. Uh, which is really the foundation that writing centers operate on ideologically. So I'm curious how you two think of that. The field has matured. I can foresee a time where people would get an advanced degree, not in rhetoric and composition, but in writing center studies. And it might be something that would be under the aegis of an education program. That said, what you, what you mentioned about higher education administration, if you don't know how to run a budget, if you don't know how to work within the institution, organizational structure, not just within an academic department, that's where writing centers are not anymore, you're going to get in big trouble. Um, there's a director, I won't name the school or the director, not a writing center person, who was hired and, and could not really manage a budget. And that program didn't last. That's one instance I know about. That person came out of a rhetoric and composition background. But you need a specialty too, whether it's English language learning or technology. I'm a coder, so I can do some, some geeky things with my web server, but I, I wasn't hired to do that. But if you have some sort of specialty that you can then complement with your staff, that's going to really extend the mission of the center. But you're right. Uh, red and comp is not enough anymore. And the great thing is that, you know, you can become a good writer and learn about writing, you know, by majoring in something other than just English or writing, you know, and, and that's uh, one great thing about the fact that, you know, more and more disciplines require more and more writing now, you know, um, we are producing uh, students, more students who are better writers and a little more used to it. And they're, they're used to doing it more in their everyday life as well, you know, because of even something as inane as Twitter, you know, they're still crafting arguments however <laughs> poorly they may be crafted sometimes on twitter but you know students are you know engaging in rhetoric in a different way on a daily basis you know so uh, i think there's a uh, you know life experience that counts for some of it you know personally like my professional experience before i went back to grad school and then became the writing center director was in retail management and that has helped me immensely in my writing center director position because of, you know, like Joe said, the budget, that was part of what I had to do, you know, um, scheduling, you know, human resource stuff, you know, um, payroll. I did all that, <laughs> you know, um, as a retail manager, as well as a writing center director. So, but I, I, I think, you know, pursuing, uh, something in educational leadership uh, could be very helpful. I've actually been considering going back to get an EDD in higher ed leadership to help as, you know, universities grow and as, you know, my own writing center grows um, to help, you know, sort of navigate uh, the very often nuanced waters <laughs> that uh, that entails. So I think um, that's something that could be ben very beneficial. The field did, the writing center field did start in an interdisciplinary way, though. I mean, we were just speaking with Mickey Harris a while back, and she mentioned 
house scenario, her service corridor scenario, where there were many people lined up against the wall and they were kind of whispering, are you you here for the writing center? Yes, and many of them came from linguistics and all these other, you know, fields. Um, not so much composition and rhetoric. And this was a while ago. And as you just mentioned, the field has matured. We do have a writing center studies area. But what I'm hearing you say is it's now moving beyond that now. It's not, it matured up to that point where we had the writing center studies area. But now we're kind of moving out of that and going back into that interdisciplinary sense um but but not so much that it would be a formal training of sorts but really it's every administrator just has that we call it a specialization something that can help you to be able to apply the mission beyond what you might learn from say composition or rhetoric or writing center studies is that right am i getting that right i think so I was going to add that faculty are coming to us very different from what they were 30 years ago. They're getting better training in graduate school to design assignments, to provide commentary. Now, it might be specific to their field of study, but we can't assume, if we have, if we have done this recently, that our faculty are clueless about writing. So they may be, because they often hold quite a bit of power depending on the institution, they can be our best allies and leveraging it. I, I'm going to, for example, I, my business writing skills, that's what I did before I went to grad school as a tech writer. They're rusty. But the person who runs our professional development program, I'm sorry, our professional communications program at our business school is going to do it in service paid for my consultants about working with business students and the type of documents they're to bring to the writing center. He's not going to be paid for that. I'm going to take him out to dinner. But he came to class and did this recently and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So find your allies on campus again who can, if I need somebody to talk about STEM or on our campus, we have a school of leadership studies, the needs of uh, adult learners. I can find a colleague locally who will come in and, and be eager to do something different and talk to the consultants because their their students may be coming to see the consultants. So that's a way we, we're getting beyond my own limits uh, educationally. What are some suggestions you have? for people who want to become writing center directors? No one is ever going to say students can write fine. We're always going to have a job. There's going to be a job for you. But keep in mind, it might be a job that's down at the end of that service corridor and you're not noticed. You have to promote yourself. That's the simple lesson I've learned after 30 years. And it is a job, I think, that you mentioned uh, that there is a big emotional investment in it. And I think that ties to the fact that students, if they're going to write well, they have to put a big emotional investment in their writing, you know, very often. And it, that it's, you know, that meta thing (laughs) that happens so often in (laughs) the writing center world, you know, it's true of our jobs too, because even for the writing consultants, you know, I had one come in one day and say, I just had six consultations in a row. I'm exhausted. It's like I ran a marathon, you know, and uh, it, it it is, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like running a marathon, you know, you're not doing a lot of sprinting work, I think in the, in the writing center world. Um, I think, and you know, you know, Joe's an example of this. He's been in his job 30 years. You know, I've been in mine almost 10. I think it's a job that, 
benefits from being committed to the long haul, you know? Um, I know that's not always the way jobs are seen these days. People, I'm losing my earbuds. (laughs) Um, You know, people stay in a job for three years and then move on or something like that. But I think writing center work, you know, requires a little more, a little more dedication and, but the rewards are very great. So tell us as we're starting to come to a close here, what your hope is for this book. I think in part, I hope that it just gets people talking about change in the writing centers and perhaps even larger uh, field, you know, the larger overall academia, um, you know, because it is something that, you know, we've seen that we're always changing, <laughs> you know, that's not going, that's not going to change. <laughs> you <laughs> <Right>. know? <laughs> so I hope that the conversation is continued, you know, every writing center director has their own story, their own narrative. And I'd love to hear more of those, you know, and to see how we can learn from each other and, you know, for sustainability, for growth, you know, mm-hmm. meaning in our jobs, which I think a lot of us do feel like we have in this field, which mm-hmm. um, can sometimes be a rare thing in this world. So very uh, true. You know. Yeah. What about you, Joe? I'd like this book to make writing center directors see and writing center consultants, tutors, whatever we call them, see that change is the one constant now in higher education and writing centers can surf that change. Because we're a commodity that people want. They want writing to be effective. And I was thinking as I was reading through the contributions, just how much um, they really show the resilience of writing center people (laughs) Um, and writing centers themselves and um, give examples of how we can thrive if we accept that what you just said, Joe, that change is the only constant. Um, so I hope that, you know, I we're, we're thankful to both of you for, for this book and to all of the contributors in the book. We were saying how nice it would have been if we could invite some of the contributors to, um, to, to talk to them or have, have you with them, um, have a conversation, but maybe next time, uh, we do, we are just so grateful for the contribution to the field, um, and that we had this opportunity to talk to both of you. We usually close with this question about research curiosity or line of inquiry does not have to necessarily be writing center related. That's percolating that you're thinking through that you would like to pursue, maybe have not yet begun. I uh, teach a course called the space race to our first years. I'm a space junkie, uh, manned space travel. I, I'm almost as avid a follower of these missions as Elon Musk. I don't really want to go because I might take a vacation there. But if we're going to become a multiplanetary species, what does that mean? And for me, one of the research projects I want to do in retirement is to write something about the history of space travel. I don't know what it's going to be yet because I think sometimes – my other life, if I'd have done it over again, I would have become a historian of technology. That's been a passion for me, both the emergence of the internet and then looking back uh, at the Apollo missions and suddenly this new commercialized space race. Oh, wow. What about you, Brian? 
The first thing that comes to mind, I think, is um, I've been thinking a lot about the humanity of academic work, you know, like the humanistic nature of it, and how sometimes that seems to get lost. I think I kind of alluded to that earlier. Um, mm -hmm. So how can we retain it, grow it, make sure we don't lose it as universities get more monetized and, you know, a little bit more corporate feeling and stuff like that. And that's also one of the reasons I would um, pursue uh, an EDD in higher ed leadership is to maybe take the reins on something like that at, a, at an institution, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and this is not to say that, you know, we're failing at this at my institution or any that I've heard of, but it's a, I guess, a concern that has popped up in my head. Um, you know, because again, with the pandemic, so much has changed and where are we headed now? What is the new normal going to be? And um, how do we retain our humanity throughout that? Um, our final question is about any resources or recommendations that could be books, uh, movies, TV shows that you that are hooking your attention right now or that you you've been really liking these days? Since we're on a podcast, I will mention uh, the the Hulu show, show "Only Murders in the Building." Oh, which I was is, watching it. Can you say it one yeah, more time? Only murders in the building. It's um, it, it's honestly a lovely little show um, that is um, by Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena oh, Gomez. Oh, yeah. And they uh, are obsessed with murder podcasts, true crime podcasts. And then a murder happens in their posh New York building and they decide to have their own to solve the murder. <laughs> and it's just, it's a smart show. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. And, you know, kind of ties in nicely to what we're doing here today. <laughs> Let's hope there's no murders in our buildings. <laughs> right. We, we would be uniquely suited to solve them though. We're good investigators. Mm -hmm. I'm going to recommend something from traditional media, but it's something that never got finished which is sad. It's a, it's a British series called Home Fires. It's about mostly focuses on women in a small town in England during the Blitz. And they canceled it after two seasons. They said it didn't fit their profile. Well, the, the thinking was it's too female-centered. Well, I love this show. I mean, it gets a little soap opera-ish in some, some regards, but it's a good show to watch about resilience and about sustainability, and about keeping your hope alive. And when the show was canceled, the uh, screenwriters went out and published three traditional novels telling the stories for the fans of the show. So I recommend Home Fires, even though it ends on a cliffhanger. It's only two seasons. It's not a big investment of time. That's a wonderful little show. You can stream it um, from Amazon Prime. I'm sure it's available other ways as well. Nice. I love that it ends on hope sustainability and resilience how and fitting a cliffhanger. and a cliff that's right there we go change as the constant <laughs> uncertainty well thank you both so much for um being our guests today we really enjoyed our conversation and we will um are sure that our listeners will do the same thank you both joe and brian well thank you thank you so much that's it for today's episode. Thanks to our guest for the insightful discussion. We would also like to thank our listeners and blog subscribers for supporting us. And a special thanks to Emmanuel Mubiru 
who provided our theme song. For notes and resources mentioned today, visit the Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders blog at wlnjournal.org forward slash blog. Thank you.